So I've been really enjoying doing these studies and just the really beautiful thing about God's word I find is that it just unfolds more and more the more you look at it. So when I'm preparing these, I, you know, I do a pass and try to format this and think through the logic of the text. And my first thought is usually, okay, this is, this is an okay chapter. There's some good parts here. It's, it's, it's okay. But, but then when I go through it again with the commentary, looking at it more, I'm like, oh, wow, there's connections here and there's application here and important things. But then it's like, I really find when I look at it the third time, and really think about things. It just, the, uh, the word unfolds. And I think often we just don't do that work of trying to unfold the text of scripture in our devotions. And maybe one thing we want to consider doing is maybe reading less, but thinking about it more. Uh, really taking a verse of thought, like what is the grammar saying? Why does it say in instead of for? Why does it say therefore? What is this connecting to? And what would this mean? Why did the writer say it this way? And I think... Uh, we would all benefit just as we wrestle and work through scripture. That's really where it unfolds. One of my favorite verses in Psalm 119 says that the unfolding of your words gives light and understanding for this, to the simple. So as we study and talk, we hope that it's an unfolding of the word that would give light. And just be, be encouraging that in your own personal devotions. Um, so anyways, this, this Psalm 97 really came alive for me this week. Um, and it was connecting to so many things going on in my life. Just thinking about the kingdom of God. This is a psalm, a psalm about the kingdom of God. And there's actually a lot in here about what we could talk about as spiritual warfare. So the kingdom of God and spiritual warfare is what I want to look, uh, look at in this. You'll notice there's some words that come up a lot in this psalm. The ideas of justice and righteousness are prevalent. The reign of God. But this is connected with gladness and joy throughout this psalm. So... If we think of the gospel of the kingdom, that is the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the growth of the kingdom of God will excite our hearts and bring about joy and gladness in our lives. And so in verse one here, the Lord reigns, that is Jehovah reigns. He is ruling. He has dominion. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. And what is the kingdom of God but... The kingdom of God is the reign of God. It's the rule of God. Yes, there's a sense in which God reigns over all of creation and is Lord of all. But God, particularly his kingdom, is where his reign is exercised, where his lordship is submitted to by particular people. So God's kingdom grows as his rule comes to bear on our lives, our families, and influences even our whole cultures. Um, and if you think about it, why would the reign of God. Why is this such a joy-giving thought that God would reign? Because when you live under the reign of a good and perfect king, it's a cause for rejoicing. A good ruler provides for the needs of his people. He protects his people and he establishes justice in the land that's according to truth and right. And if you look at um, throughout history, so many examples, if you think of um, countries that are ruled by a dictator or just have a terrible and corrupt society, when the evil government is overthrown and righteous rulers are established, the peoples rejoice. The peoples celebrate when they're delivered from oppressive governments and brought into a righteous nation. Why do so many people in this world want to come to the United States? Because there's a sense in which the government here, for all its problems, for all its issues, is... There is a level of justice and there's a level of righteousness in society that allows for a gladness 
and flourishing. Uh, what do you guys talk about here? It's um, the pursuit of happiness, right? There is a joy that ought to be found in a good and righteous land. And pray the Lord that he increases and um, keeps righteousness and grows righteousness in this land. So this is our premise verse, though that the Lord is reigning and this is a cause for rejoicing, the reign of God. So now verses two to six, we're going to see here are a description of who this reigning king is, who this Lord is in this land. Um, And this is metaphorical language describing the greatness and majesty of our God. Uh, We're going to see about clouds and darkness, lightnings, mountains, and some commentators try to pin each of these ideas to very specific things, like the lightnings are the sermons that are preached and go and strike the hearts. Um, I, I think we do better here to take the picture and interpret it as a whole as what's the image of God being created by these metaphors, as opposed to trying to pinpoint precisely what they might apply to. Does that make sense? So clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Uh, There may be an allusion to Mount Sinai here. If you remember when God went down to give the Ten Commandments, there was darkness and cloud, smoke, thunder, lightnings, and trumpets. So this image is, there's a lot of allusion to that here. And what did God do at Mount Sinai? He gave his law. That's a kingly act. That's a judicial act of establishing a just way for society delivered in this darkness and this great majesty. So clouds and darkness surround him. This picture of awe. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. This is the foundation of every good government. Must be established on righteousness, must be established on justice. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. Uh, if you're going to enact justice, you have to take care of what's unjust. So the fire of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God comes against every injustice, every unrighteous thing that it would be consumed. And if you remember when we talked about justice last week, this isn't just that final judgment day, but this even happens in our own lives as Christians. Um, When the prophet says God will purify the sons of Levi, that we want the fire of God to consume the sin in our own hearts, that the righteousness and justice of God would penetrate our lives and the fire of God would consume the sin and purify us to be useful, pure vessels for God. Because Justice and the punishment of the wickedness, punishment of wickedness is essential to justice as much as enforcing and promoting the good is. His lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles at this vision of this God who's at work, who's powerful, such as we might see in lightning. Mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. God is above all and as mighty and strong as the mountains are, They're as nothing. They melt like wax before this God who is so majestic, so powerful, so great. And here's the summary of this uh, section of who God is. Is that the heavens declare his righteousness and all peoples see his glory. The heavens declare his righteousness and the peoples see his glory. We might think here of Psalm, 119, or Psalm 19, verse 1, that the heavens declare the glory of God. They speak something about who God is. And it's actually likened to speech even in that passage. Or in Romans 1, where it says that what can be known about God 
there is things known about God revealed in the created world. And it talks about there his Godhead and his power, his divine power and creativity is seen in the things that have been made. And the people's, all people see his glory. That is his glory that's displayed in the heavens, his glory that is reflected in creation. And I'll try to wrestle through this thought in verse six of the heavens declare his righteousness. Um, I understand the heavens declare his power and his wisdom, but how does the world declare that God is righteous? Because that seems like a moral category. It seems like that doesn't fit to something. So as I was trying to think through this, I was reminded of um, in our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter four, it talks about the creation. And in talking about the creation, it says that the created world manifests the glory of God in three things. The world manifests God's power, his wisdom, and his goodness. Power, wisdom, and goodness are what we confess and we see in scripture reveal, is what's revealed of God in this world. And it's really interesting if you think of... Um, some of the most what we call classical arguments for God's existence in the Christian tradition relate to these three areas. We talk about how God is the cause of all things. There must be one great cause, which is a testimony to his power. There must be an ultimate power to be a cause of everything from nothing. But also God, it says his wisdom, which is what we call the teleological argument, or that is the argument from design that if this world is so intricate and works so well, the wisdom that would be needed to design such a world could only come from one such as God. Uh, his wisdom, but also his goodness, which we've often called the moral argument for God, that God has instilled this sense of justice in every heart, a sense of morality that is similar in a lot of ways throughout cultures, but it speaks to us that there's a sense of right and wrong that comes from something other than the material world. So, but how does this relate to righteousness? This is what I was thinking about. How do these things relate to righteousness? And then I realized that goodness, power, and wisdom are how we do right. That's what it means to do righteousness. So, follow me here. If you have a good intention in your heart that is truly good, if you're powerless to enact that, it's not going to help anybody. But maybe you have the power to do a good thing, but if you're not wise in how you do it, we often hurt people that we're trying to help. We see this all the time in government, trying to help people, but it actually ends up hurting those people you're trying to help because you don't have the wisdom to enact goodness well. Or you might have wisdom and a wise way to do a good work, but if you don't have the resources or energy to actually do it, nothing happens. So God's righteousness is his pure goodness flowing through a perfect divine mind to actually enact and do good and make right in this world. So the heavens declare God's righteousness and that this world testifies to us that there is such a thing as goodness and that there is an almighty wisdom that could enact this goodness and an almighty power that could implement it. And so God's righteousness is declared from the created world and it speaks of his glory to all peoples. And maybe they don't recognize it in full, but it creates an obligation on all men to worship God. Um, any thoughts on this so far? Any questions? I know that was, I just went on for a lot. Okay, so you said that most of the 
most of this was just metaphorical, but if you look at like the sounds of Saturn, how Saturn's rings actually have a noise that is like never ending. We talked about this in my apologetics mm -hmm. class at school. And so this is like an actual literal declaration of God's power and might and stuff through his mm. creation that you can actually like hear. Hmm. It's more than just metaphorical in some cases. Yeah, I think there's something that even like the sounds created in the world, like the birds chirping declares the praises of God in a sense. Um, a real audio, audible sound. Um, that's cool about Saturn's rings make, make music. Uh, I think the picture here, you know, there could be applications in a literal sense. That like when we see God's lightning, real lightning, it reminds us of, wow, there is so much power in this world. And it does, I think, speak to us a sense of judgment and foreboding and these things. So, yeah, I think there is a sense in which it can be a little bit of both and there. So, any, any, anyone else, any thoughts? Yeah. Well. I was just saying, seeing verse 6, all the people see his glory. And that just reminds me again, like you said, of Romans 1. Mm -hmm. They're without excuse. Mm -hmm. Because it's there. They can see it. Mm -hmm. They don't admit it. But yeah. And really, ought that be um, an impetus for us to care about mission and missions that because the nations are without excuse, we want them to know this God who they're not worshiping, that they would be worshipers of God, worshipers of the one true God and join us in this wonderful um, life in the kingdom, life following the way of Jesus. Just such a, it's a beautiful place to live. Uh, the second section here is now a judgment against the God's of this age. We see in verse 7, in light of God, who God is, in light of his power, the righteousness the world declares of him, let all be put to shame who served carved images, who boast of idols. Uh, this, the words here talking about carved images and idols carry with it the connotation of vanity. You could think vain idols or um, vain carved images. What idols and carved images are? They're vanity. They're useless. They're no real gods. They're no real things to put your hope in. And this is almost like a call that we want people in this world to realize that the idols, the things they're putting their hope in, are ultimately going to come to naught. And they're ultimately vain hopes. And they're ultimately vain desires apart from God. And you can even think of this verse as, this is a type of prayer I really like praying for unbelievers. Um, and if you know someone who's an unbeliever, this is a great thought that they would realize the vanity of whatever it is pursuing, they're pursuing. That they'd realize the uselessness of looking for true fulfillment for their soul in anything other than God. Uh, those who boast of idols. And then the call is, instead of pursuing these vain idols, worship him, all you gods. Worship him, all uh, so-called gods. Worship him, all kings who are like gods. Worship him, all heavenly beings. Turn from your idols and worship this God of justice who's bringing a kingdom of joy and righteousness. And I just want to look at this verse a little more in this sense. Um, we've, we've talked in a different class about idolatry in a personal sense, that we make our selfishness and things an idol. But I was thinking... Um, just today, actually, what do we think about idolatry corporately or nationally? This is a song that's inclusive of more than just our individual lives. And so I was thinking about here in America, what are the idols that we boast in nationally? 
and what are the systems, the ideologies, these worldly principalities and powers that we exalt as the way we think justice is going to come in this world. So that idea of justice, how is what's wrong with the world going to be made right? And here's what I think are some of the American idols that we put trust in to make what's wrong in the world right. We put trust in democracy as a system. Democracy will make what's wrong in the world right. Or we put trust in capitalism. Capitalism is what will make what's wrong in the world right. And, or education. People just need to be trained the right way, controlled and taught the right way. Then what's wrong in the world will be made right. And all stemming from this, what I think is the greatest idol of this, individual freedom. I am free to pursue wealth the way I want to. I'm free to pursue government the way I want to. I'm free to pursue education without any constraints. And these systems have been so idolized in our culture that we think just going to foreign nations, and if we give them democracy and education and capitalism, there will be justice in the land. There will be a flourishing of righteousness. But no, justice and righteousness in the land only comes when God's righteousness is the foundation of it all. And if God's righteousness is the constraints of all these things, democracy under God's righteousness, capitalism under God's righteousness, education constrained by what God has revealed, then these things can become tools under the guardianship of God. But when we um, release from this idea that our freedom is the greatest thing in the world, we forget that we're actually called to be slaves of God and be under his lordship in all that we do. So when we are teaching people, educating people, it's got to be based on the constraints that God puts on us. When we're pursuing wealth or to do business, we ought to be doing it under the constraints of God's law and God's values and the values of the kingdom. And I think this does hit close to home for us, but we want to love everything under God, to see God be king over society, God be king over all these systems. To put every ideology and system underneath the lordship of Christ. That's what our great desire should be. And so when this happens, when the idols of cultures are judged by the kingdom of God, then Zion hears and is glad. Zion hears a reference to the church of God, the people of God. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice. That could be, um, the, the daughters of Judah could be a reference in a sense to a smaller unit than the whole church. Particular congregations even. The church as a whole, and the churches in particular, we rejoice when the kingdom of God comes and eradicates darkness and injustice and brings light and righteousness and hope to a nation. And we rejoice in these judgments um, that condemns man's attempts to be autonomous. And when God's judgment comes, it starts making what's wrong right, starting with our own hearts, making that sin, rebellion against God, in our own hearts and turning it to righteousness. Uh, we rejoice because you, O Lord, verse 9, are most high above all gods, or above all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. Jesus Christ, as King, He's exalted above every worldly system, every principality and power, every false ideology. Christ, in His truth and righteousness, He reigns over it all. And this is what I think we ought to be talking about when we think of the concept of spiritual warfare. 
Spiritual warfare is not a matter of trying to get angels to battle demons or to claim spiritual truths, but it's fighting at the realm of ideologies and systems that control cultures at a high level. So when we're fighting in the spirit, we're fighting the lies of individual autonomy. We're fighting the lies that you can find true fulfillment without God. We fight the lies that there's justice found in human systems and not in the kingdom of God with the truth that, verse 1, the Lord reigns and the earth can rejoice under the righteous reign of God. And when we speak the truth and counteract these, the lies of the enemy, we're actually warring on a spiritual level, at an ideological level, at a systematic level as we interact in this world. Is, are you, you guys following that? Does that make sense? Anyone have any thoughts or things to add or questions? I hope I haven't ruffled too many American feathers. <laughs> You're kind of talking like in a very generalized sense, very, very generalized sense. Can you be like more precise and specific to like examples of, of what you just spoke of? Yeah, so um, if we think of how our country has unmoored itself from the truth on, um, this is the first thing that's come to mind, but... When you start to believe the lie that gender doesn't matter and you can be anything you want, um, it, it leads to injustice, but that's coming from an ideology. It's coming from that ideology of individual autonomy that I say who I am at, in every level. The way God's created me or made me doesn't matter because man himself is the autonomous ultimate judge. And that would be one application of that ideology what do you right. do with, like, medical situations when, you know, God creates somebody who doesn't have, you know, a specific designation? I mean, there's a lot of medical stuff that can mm -hmm. happen in, like, as the baby's developing mm -hmm. genetically. What right. What do you do with that? I, I don't know for every situation. Like, there's so much evil in this world that the good order has been corrupted in ways that make situations extremely confusing and at times incredibly difficult. And so I can't speak to every situation. And I know there's times that we might disagree because things are so nuanced and complex. But as far as applying an ideology, that ideology of individual autonomy um, to allow someone to choose whatever they want, their own morality, their own lifestyle in every way, is basically saying God is not the king, I am. But, so can you see how that might instant make itself in a particular instant like that? Something like that. And yeah, there could be a lot more we could, we could talk about. Like when I think I'm free to exploit my employees as long as I can, then can convince them to still work for me and treat them poorly just because they have nowhere else to go, because I think that I can do whatever I want with my own business, instead of subjecting my business to the lordship of Christ and the way God calls me to treat my employees, we've bought that ideology that I'm the master and God isn't. And it really does affect everything. It really does. Um, and then verse uh, 10, we've come from this seeing who God is, how he judges the nations. And then this last section is a call to us as saints. And it's such a beautiful application of these truths. And a call to us in the end is uh, we have, it starts off with an imperative, a command, then gives us two promises and ends with another command. So verse 10, you, in light of God's justice and judgment coming, you who love the Lord, who love the reign of the king, who love Jesus Christ, are to hate evil. We're to hate every wrong in this world. 
every injustice, whether personal, relational, or national, societal, hate everything that's wrong. Um, And not just hating the evil that's out there in the world, but to truly hate the evil that's in our own hearts when we see our selfishness, when we see our corruption, when we see how we're trying to live autonomously as servants for ourselves. And not just the societal sins that we, we easily poke at, such as abortion or sexual promiscuity, but also remembering that we need to hate greed and we need to hate materialism and we need to hate self-centeredness and lack of care for the poor and hurting. The things that we don't like to remember are evils that we need to hate as well. We need to hate all evil that is against the kingdom of God. Remembering that as we engage in this war, and people are going to not like us from hopefully all sides of secular culture, that the Lord preserves the souls of his saints and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. If we're willing to engage in spiritual warfare, in battling these false ideologies, we're going to make ourselves vulnerable to attack and expose ourselves to attack. But we need to look to the Lord in this, that he preserves the souls of his saints. This is primarily a spiritual promise that God preserves our souls safe in Christ and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So this, this happens spiritually for the righteous. And this often happens temporally. God often is pleased to deliver us. But this will ultimately, finally, and fully occur in heaven as God um, fully delivers us from every spiritual darkness. A beautiful promise. Um, Verse 11. I love this picture. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Light here is corresponding to gladness and That picture of that word for sown is more like it's the scattering of the seed, not the implanting of it in the ground. So if you imagine God as the sower, he sows the word, but he's sowing light. There's such a dark world and Jesus Christ comes in and he scatters seeds of light as it were. And as the gospel goes forth, it's like seeds of light being sown into the world that will then hopefully plant and grow and spring up as citadels of light. Individually, we're all products of light that springs up in the darkness in our own hearts. And then as we gather together to city on a hill, we're all these individual lights that the sower has sown who get to be a light of worship for the Lord here in Zealand. What a beautiful thing. And the light of the kingdom is the light that produces gladness for, notice it says here, for the righteous, for the upright, for the righteous. As the righteousness of God comes, it's come to us. And through Jesus Christ, we've been made righteous when we trust in him. His justice has actually judged the sin that we deserve to be punished for. And we are now the righteous who get to follow our king as we seek righteousness to do right, to make what's wrong in our families right, to seek to make what's wrong in our hearts right, to seek to make what's wrong in society right, but coming from a place where we know we've already been made right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And this ought to produce such a gladness, such a joy for the one who lives in the kingdom of light. Um, I think it's First Peter 2 that says, God called us out of darkness that we might proclaim the praises of the one who's called us into his marvelous light. 
or translated from the kingdom of Satan in Colossians 1, placed into the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is a kingdom of joy. Uh, We've read one of my favorite verses in Romans 14 this morning in the sermon, which says that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not these different rules or things, but it's righteousness, or you could say justice. It's peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When the light is sown and springs up, it brings a harvest of righteousness, doing right, seeking justice, a harvest of peace, peace with God, peace with our own selves and our own conscience, peace with our neighbors, and joy, joy in the Holy Ghost that we are free, that we get to serve such a good king who gives us such a good way of life, that we get to follow an apprentice to Jesus, as it were, be his followers, be in his school be taught of him. And so that final command in verse 12 calls us, rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. Give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name, his name that is set apart, the king who's so high above every other king, to give thanks for him and to rejoice in him, which is what we do as we come together to worship in God's kingdom. We join our voices and give thanks to our king. We sit before his word and ask him to instruct us in the way of the kingdom that he would judge the darkness in our hearts and lead us in his truth. As his kingdom sweeps up and sweeps into this world and it brings these things and hopefully we partner with that and we want to be those who join with God in sowing light and living lives of righteousness and peace and joy. Um, we, we, We have another five or six minutes so if anyone has any thoughts to add or things you're thinking, um, Feel free. We have a, have a little bit more time.